Hi, I'm Carla Wainwright. And I'm Little Leah. And welcome to the Radical Sex Witches podcast, where we explore the themes of sexuality, feminism, consciousness, love, healing, ritual, magic, and all things witchy and wonderful. Cheese and fucking rice. It's another episode of the Radical Sex Witches. I'm Little Leah, and with me as always is Carla Wainwright, who didn't know I was going to say that, and she can't really hold it together right now. Oh, I can barely talk. Okay, hi, everybody. (laughs) That's a shout out to my friend Mikey Slashik on Twitter. He said that, and now I try to fit it in wherever I can. It's like Jesus fucking rice, but it's cheese and fucking rice. So you take that out to the world witches and use it everywhere anyways another time traveling episode for our listeners today and we're going back to the time between 5 and 15 ad to bring you yay old medieval sex guide (laughs) yes uh we are doing another time travel episode and this this i got the idea for this i was inspired by our conception through the ages episode And I just found so many good facts. And just to uh, let everyone know, I'm a total whore for all things medieval. Like, I think you're um, just a total whore in general, but that's just me. It's true. It's true. (laughs) But yeah, I kind of, even as a kid, I had a major thing for all things medieval. So I'm all here for it. Prithy, let's get on with the woodness, which means please let's get on with the madness. And uh, as you can tell, I didn't fucking write that. Yeah, that's some quote from some old medieval book. I thought it was funny. Okay, let's get going here. So, um, ye old medieval sex guide. So the first, uh, I guess, guide point is that the missionary position was the only position that was sanctioned in medieval times. This is in Europe, of course. So uh, sex was mainly considered only for procreation. And any position other than missionary, missionary was considered unnatural and therefore sinful. And other positions had the risk of confusing gender roles because, of course, (laughs) nobody wanted to see a man outside of a position of power. So uh, we're going to get into more positions in a bit. But one of the worst positions, you know, of course, is having a woman on top. My my brain immediately went there when you said not letting a man be out of his position of power. Yep. Yep. And the only exception to this was uh, was in the case of severe obesity. So then it was allowed. (laughs) And the sin for deviant sexual behavior was punishable by up to three years imprisonment. I bet you no ladies you cannot be on top. I bet you there was still a lot of fucking sinners. Obviously. (laughs) Who writes this shit? So you know what? Like a lot of a lot of people that go back and that like if we had time travel, they're like, I go kill Hitler as a baby. I think I go and visit all these people that wrote these books that we talk about on this show just to like hear what their reasoning was or, you know, what was the root of this rule that we just made up? Yeah, of course. And then, of course, to to see how hypocritical they were in their own lives. So exactly. So continuing on with sex positions, apparently people figured out that doing the same thing all the time was boring as fuck. So over time, some of the more liberal thinking theologians decided to give themselves a little wiggle room. They ranked five sexual positions from least sinful to most sinful based on how natural in quotation marks they were. The ranking was missionary, side by side, sitting, standing and a, and <laughs> a tergo, which is doggy uh, woman on top was still not even included. Apparently it's too sinful for this list. Yep. So only five positions. 
from missionary to Turgo. <laughs> These people are just walking around in the town square, like being like, this is so fucking boring. <laughs> They're all like not going to work that day because <laughs> they're protesting sex. Yes. And I didn't actually find out, you know, so if they're ranking them, you know, how many demerit points do you get if you're doing the sitting or the standing and what it actually <laughs> leads to? More Hail Marys, less Hail Marys, something like that. All right. So uh, number three, anything that was only for pleasure and not for procreation was a sin. So therefore, masturbation was definitely a sin. Anal sex was a sin. Oral sex was a sin. And actually, it's a really big sin. And in one book bigger than anal. Yes, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) In one book called The Canons of Theodore pretty much said oral sex is the worst thing ever. Uh, Quote, whoever ejaculates seed into the mouth, that is the worst evil from someone. It was judged that they repent this up to the end of their lives. Oh, my God. So that yeah. was that was a surprise Rochambeau there. You know, some there was some bishop that was probably sucking some wang, got a mouth load and was like, never again. I mean, I can side with that. It's not my favorite thing, but I don't have the ability to make a law about it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you make a law about, Leah? I don't fucking. Oh, God, I want to pop off on the par- patriarchy so hard these days. There's something regarding them, I'm sure. Anyways, let's keep going. Number four. That, of course, did not stop people from sinning in all the ways. And while they were medieval wooden sex toys, ouch, uh, many people just didn't have that kind of money and they wanted no evidence to be found. So apparently women used (laughs) hard loaves of bread to masturbate. Kids, you're going hungry. (laughs) Mama needs some pleasure. Well, and then, you know, later, not for the kids, of course. But if you were, you know, then then there could be a meal afterwards for the other person. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the bread's already buttered. <laughs> it's not hard anymore. <laughs> it's like bread pudding. I'm sorry. I need to stop. <laughs> you and I would have been stoned to death in this era. Yeah, I uh, unquestionably. I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure. But you know, in very resourceful not wasting anything. This this bread is rock hard, too hard to eat. Get it to my um, hither the <laughs> pussy massager. Hither the my nither regions. Yes. <laughs> All right. So five, the church distinguished two types of vows or two types of consent to marriage that were considered to be equally binding. So we had the bet- betrothal during which a couple promises to marry each other in the future. And then the second one is the exchange of vows in the present tense. So what that means is that a promise of marriage in the future could be broken um, unless the couple had intercourse. And if they had, then they were legally married. So consummation made betrothal a legally valid marriage, which could not be broken. Yes. And so, of course, there's a lot of confusion that arose from this definition of marriage. And many, many, many cases were heard by the ecclesiastical courts concerning people who disagreed on what had happened. I bet. (laughs) Had they talked and fornicated or exchanged promises of marriage and consummated the union? 
Oh my God. Can you imagine if that was like relevant today? Like just knowing what, like how people are with online dating and sex and it's only basically just for sex and like, you know, 80% of the cases, probably more. Well, he promised to marry me. Yeah, exactly. It's just, there'd probably be a lot less men. So paradise by the the dashboard light. (laughs) And, you know, Henry VIII, that's that whole, this whole thing really came up in his, uh, you know, trying to get divorced from his first wife, which he did, and then his second wife, Anne Boleyn, and he tried to say that, you know, she'd had a betrothal, and was it consummated or not, and then his first wife, you know, she was married to his brother, and did they consummate it, and that's like, that's where that all came down to, like, did they have sex or not, you know, was there a betrothal, so this was like, considered, it was taken pretty seriously. Well, number six, in the early Middle Ages, clerical attitudes towards sexuality were highly restrictive. The list of, is this chaste? Chaste. Chaste days, during which partners should refrain from intercourse, roughly match the religious calendar. Oh, my God. No intercourse was permitted on the major holidays, such as the Nativity or Easter, neither on six the six weeks of Lent, nor on Sundays and fish days. Only a few days were left for people to have sex, although m- most historians doubt that these rules were really followed. That's right. No, no, Jebediah. It's the Lord's Day and I'm making fish. And breadsticks. <laughs> She's softening breadsticks on that. <laughs> okay, seven. Is, wait, wait, wait. Is this where like all you can eat breadsticks have come from? <laughs> where can you get all you can eat breadsticks? I have not. Olive Garden. Patronize that. Don't you watch TV? <laughs> Are breadsticks still a thing? I remember that as a kid. They were a thing at a restaurant for sure. And then they started to be wrapped in plastic. Um, but I have not seen a, a breadstick in many. Americans many chime in. You have Olive Garden. So I'm pretty sure it's still an all you can eat thing. Probably. But it came from so just somewhere. Throw a few in your handbag. In your <laughs> Let, Let them dry, dry out. out. <laughs> Et voila. Talk about a yeast infection. <laughs> We are going to move on from the breadsticks, we promise. Okay. I'm not promising anything. (laughs) Number seven. Once the marriage was consummated, it was thought that sex should be given on demand. So the concept of marital debt was entrenched in tradition. So St. Paul had asserted that husbands and wives should pay each other what was due. So interestingly, that they both had power over each other's body. Yeah, these uh, conceptions of marital debt were carried through the centuries. So both husbands and wives had the right to demand intercourse, and they both had the obligation to to comply, except if they have taken a vow of chastity or the demand was unlawful. I'm not sure what what would constitute unlawful, but Sundays and fish days <laughs> and breadstick days. <laughs> breadstick days. Before we just like happen to go down that path, I'm just going to keep moving. I know on what the image is going to be for this. <laughs> For this episode, it's just gonna be a breadstick. A basket of breadsticks, and everyone's gonna be like, what the fuck? Oh, thanks for the idea, Carla. <laughs> I can't get it together. Oh god, I'm delirious right now. Um, number eight, 
Bedrooms were not private places in the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah, we've seen this in shows. The bed was often more shared with children and other relatives in humble households, while in more wealthy houses, servants usually slept in their master's room. So sex was not a private act as it is today. A lot of sex also seems to have happened out in the open. All right. In fields, backyards, and alleyways, even in cemeteries or in the middle of the day in empty churches and empty houses. All right. I mean, I don't, I'm all for that, but like, I don't think I'd want to like go to 7-Eleven to like, you know, get a Slurpee and someone's just like getting pounded like next to the checkout, but that's just me. Well, maybe if that was just the norm, then we wouldn't think it was a big deal. Yeah, I guess so. All the public, public park porkings. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So number nine is a long one. Okay, so since it was important that people have kids, not being able to perform was considered a major problem. So if a guy couldn't get it up, get this, their penis would literally be investigated by the church. (laughs) So in the end, if sex was impossible, it was legally acceptable for the woman to file for divorce. And I'm going to share with you this actual case that's recorded uh, of Alice Barber versus William Barber in London in 1490. So Alice was the plaintiff and she claimed that her husband, William, was impotent and she sought to have the marriage annulled. William refuted the claim, saying he was capable of the act, but simply did not desire his wife, even though she, quote, diligently demanded it. Sure, Jan. Yeah. So to settle the case, a similar process uh, to that of other secular medieval courts was used. So what happened is they convened what were called a jury of matrons. And these were usually married women in their 40s and 50s. And they were tasked with inspecting the man's penis to determine whether or not he was impotent. I mean, it's it's pretty humiliating. A little ball Uh, tickle, see if it pops up a bit. (laughs) In poor William's case, it seems Alice's claims of impotence were decidedly true. One witness, this woman named Alice Norris, testified the following, quote, William is unable to know Alice Carnley or procreate a child with her or with any other woman because he says his or she says his penis is black. That is swart and blue. And she believes (laughs) that his penis was burned and that he lost the back part of his penis. The back part? Yeah, I don't know. She (laughs) says that at the time of the inspection of the penis, it was scarcely scarcely the length of a penis of a two year old boy. Oh, no. I know it's, it's pretty horrible. Very sad. So the jury of matrons all agreed that William could not perform his marital obligations. And although the outcome was not of this case wasn't actually recorded by law, Alice Barber would have been entitled to the divorce she sought, and it was probably granted by the court. Wow. Yeah, because remember, divorce was you couldn't get divorced just because your partner was an asshole. Yeah. Well, I'd say Alice had a pretty good reason. She did have a good reason. I want to know how long they were married for before they went to court. Like, what was he doing? He would just be like, lie back, sweetheart, and use his fingers or something and pretend. I don't know. I have a lot of questions for Alice and William. Another time traveling episode. (laughs) (laughs) Number 10. If a woman fell pregnant while her husband was away from home, uh uh-oh, it was not considered to indicate adultery. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Medieval people believe pregnancies could go on for much longer. 
than the nine months that modern medical science tells us to expect. In the Middle Ages, ages pregnancies supposedly lasted as long as several years. The law also dis—I can't even read today. The law also dictated that any child born to a married woman belonged to her husband. So the assumption would always be that he had been responsible for the pregnancy. Years. Yes, I know. It seems like a get out of jail card. Oh, yeah. you were gone. You've been gone for 19 months. It's yours. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> that man running out of my bedroom, he had nothing to do with this. He was I was just fixing so the roof. He was fixing the roof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, people believe pregnancy. I, I would guess they would pretty much know nine months was pretty much the yeah, the come typical. on. At that point, you're living in a village. Yes, people are popping out kids everywhere. Yes, again, another another story about Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Mary. Uh, she, um, well, was supposedly pregnant, but uh, after nine months and ten months and eleven months and twelve months, etc., went by, they realized that that was not the case. Of course, yeah, but they gave her a lot of a lot of leeway on that nine months. <laughs> okay. Finally, number 11. Sorry, sorry. I just read the title. <laughs> if women prayed hard enough, they got their virginity back. <laughs> Can you hear Madonna singing in the background? <laughs> no, I just pictured some poor little thing just praying so fucking hard for her hymen to seal back up. Yes. So since virgin virginity was basically the most important thing for a woman to hang on to, the church made it possible to get <laughs> yours back. <laughs> so note, in case anyone's confused, which I'm sure you're not, this is physically impossible. <laughs> but you could become reborn as a figurative virgin if you confessed your sins, did years of pen- penance, and spent the rest of your life in a convent. Oh, my God. And then... I didn't include this in the notes, but I did read that um, there was also a lot of criticism about convents because the idea was that uh, oh, women had to wear their, what are they called? Uh, their ha- habits? Is that what a nun wears? I uh, think so. Yeah. Yes. They had to wear their habits 24 seven. They had to sleep in them the whole thing because otherwise uh, women were prone to, you know, getting it on in their nighties in the <laughs> convent. And that was a big no, no. So they were with each other. With each other, yeah. Well, they were virgins again. It was all good. So, um, (laughs) yeah, so they had to stay fully dressed all the time. Anyway. I I hope that this is picking up my, uh, I call him little Lord Faulkneroy when he becomes demanding, but Otis is just like howling in the back. So it's probably a good thing we're coming to an end here. (laughs) Fuck face cat. Um, That was a really good list, Carla. Um, I'm really thankful we don't live in these times. It's really fucked up. Yeah. But it's funny now, right? It sure is. <laughs> so next time on the Radical Sex Witches podcast, we're going to talk about sexual energy and the microcosmic orbit. Woo-wee. One more howl for my asshole cat. As always, I'm little Leah. And I'm Carla. We are the Radical Sex Witches, and we will see you next time. Hello, witchy listener. It's Carla here. If you're feeling disconnected from pleasure and unfulfilled in life, reach out to me and let's connect on a free call. 
I love helping women like you shift to owning your sexual power, reconnecting to your body, and finding your unique radical sex switch within. Go to CarlaWainwright.com or find my contact info in the show notes. Let's co-create a life for you that is truly turned on.